Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has six years of law enforcement analysis experience. She spent time with the city of Surrey and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and is now a member with Penlink. She holds a master's in art, and she is known as a good Canadian kid. Please welcome Amanda Shank. Amanda, how are we doing? I'm doing well. Happy to be here. Thanks for having uh, me. All right. How is Canada these days? <laughs> I'll speak for all of Canada. It's uh, yes. it's great up here. <laughs> we're yes. uh, we're all doing well. I uh, used to listen to another podcast uh, where the guy was from Canada, and he always pointed out people that were from Canada, and he would call them good Canadian kids. And so that's <laughs> what that reference is from. All right, so awesome. Glad to have you here for our audience. Just a housekeeping note: we are going to have a call-in segment, Favorite First Job. So if you have your Favorite First Job, call in now and we will get you on the air. So, all right, Amanda, how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? (laughs) Yeah, I come at it pretty honestly. So I have a family background in law enforcement. I grew up with a father as a police officer and uh, an aunt who was a police officer. They had relatives who were police officers. So there's a bit of a family theme there. And when I was 17, finishing up high school, I got a job at a local police department, the one conveniently that my dad worked at. And so I worked in like a records capacity there, though, working with our uh, records management system, transcribing interviews, that kind of stuff. And I did that. It was fun. I enjoyed it. I did that for a number of years while I was going away to school. So I'd go away to school, come back in the summers and then work there some more. And That's uh, that's a good summer job. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I I loved it. It was fun. Working shift work allowed me to like do different stuff during the summertime days if I was working at night. It was it was a lot of fun. I I liked it and so much so that I wanted to stay in law enforcement. I thought the work is interesting, but I also thought as I started moving towards the end of my degree, what is it going to be look like to put my degree? I have an undergrad in sociology. What is it going to look like to put that to use? And I still remember the day like sitting in my living room, I think probably talking about what what am I going to do with my life, with my family. <laughs> and I think it was my dad who was like, well, there's this analyst job at our department. Like maybe something like crime analysis would be interesting to you. And at that point, I had really not a big understanding of what an analyst would do, but it sort of piqued my interest. So then from there, I would say that's where it all started. And I think that's why that moment stands out to me. But then, then from there, had the opportunity to connect with that analyst and understand a little bit more about her job and what she did. And she did a lot of like tactical investigative support. And so I learned from her, then briefly got a analyst internship position. And then from there kind of set out to figure out a way to become an analyst as my career. So that's kind of how I became aware of it. So was there any talk or thought about actually becoming an officer? Oh, that is such a good question. I love it. No. (laughs) (laughs) Never seriously. A couple of times, especially right after I got hired as an analyst, I kind of had a fleeting 
whatever, just become an officer. But personality-wise, I'm much more comfortable. I, I like working with data. I like working with information. I'm really happy to be behind a desk doing that and supporting supporting the people who are really great at kind of doing the investigative stuff on the road. So no. And then I sit, would say the other moment when I became convinced that I was never going to become an officer was <laughs> I was sitting in like a briefing for a homicide a couple months after I became an analyst. And I was like, the number of years it would take me, the investigators I'm with, they have tons of experience in this room and the number of years it would take me to be able to get back in this room compared to I'd been an analyst for three or four months obviously I was lucky to have the opportunity to be there but I was like yeah I I don't <laughs> I don't need to do that so yeah it was never never a real consideration I would say yeah no I I guess I've watched probably too many movies or too much tv where you have the parent that's an officer and then wants their son or daughter to be an officer as well and take on the family business and all this other <laughs> stuff and push them in, in that direction and then yeah, have them be disappointed that their son or daughter is just an analyst, right? <laughs> no, credit and kudos to my dad, I guess, for, for definitely supporting my career, probably understanding that not sure I was cut out to be an officer <laughs> and really understanding and valuing the work of a good analyst. He had some experience with fantastic analysts. And I think that sort of helped shape his understanding of the job. But funny you mentioned that because unexpectedly, my brother did end up becoming a police officer and I have a cousin who's a police officer as well. So it's, yeah. it's really a family business at this point. Nice. Nice. So we've talked on this show to a number of guests who were, part of records, a records clerk or in mm. the records unit at police departments and what they learned from being in that job that helped them once they became an analyst. And knowing the, the system, knowing the, the data, knowing how data gets into the system, working with people at the police department, working with citizens that are coming in to the police department to ask questions about the records. There's just a lot to learn that helps you later when you are an analyst. Did you, is there a particular skill set or particular part of the clerk's job that you think really helped you when you became an analyst? The part that you touched on there first, like really understanding the data, where it comes from, the systems you're working with, that is the first thing that comes to mind for me. Definitely, like absolutely the value of that. Those things take a while to pick up on, and it definitely felt like a leg up that I was familiar with some of those things when I did start as an analyst. And the other part I would say is is a little more intangible, and it's the culture piece. It's how our police investigations run? What sorts of things do the investigators I'm going to work with care about? What legal considerations are they that are top of mind for them that I need to make sure my work kind of helps them out with or fits in with? All of that, the understanding of sort of the policing process and the culture, that feels mm -hmm. a little harder to measure, but that feels like it really contributed to being able to hit the ground running as an analyst. Yeah. Now, I, you, I also see here on your resume that you were the program coordinator with the Greater Victorian Crime Stoppers. Uh, I was. Which, which I don't remember having a guest. You might be the first <laughs> that was part of Crime Stoppers, at least yeah. off the top of my head. I can't remember another analyst being part of Crime Stoppers, but I want to also make sure that there's not a different, like it means something mm. else in Canada. So is that where the Crime Stoppers to me is a program where the police pay for tips? <laughs> for 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 that is that what that is or do you is that it's something different in Canada? 
No, yeah, it's it's roughly the same thing. Uh, okay. Up in Canada, I think there's sort of this, they keep this distinction between, because there can be compensation involved with anonymous mm-hmm. tips, they mm-hmm. keep this distinction and it's kind of a separate separate body or separate organization just to keep a bit of distance from, you don't want police necessarily paying or motivating tips. But yes, that is the essence of the program. It's uh, an opportunity for people to submit anonymous tips. If it leads to investigative outcomes, you can get compensation. And that position I took, I didn't hold it for super long, but I took it sort of as part of my strategy of trying to become an analyst, getting my hands on more things, getting more exposure. So I got from that job, I got a better understanding of how, like, of the legal environment around how handling anonymous um, information in the Canadian legal system, how that can play out in court. So developed a bit of a better legal background there. So it was kind of one of one of the couple job pieces that I was able to tie together to hopefully make a compelling analyst resume and eventually get hired. Yeah, no. Is now is there any when you think back at that job, and I'm just thinking at some of the tips that you, that some of these police departments oh. get, right? Is there does one come to mind as maybe being ridiculous or just something that you remember? I there were I will say there were more ridiculous tips than not at least at the time that I was working. Nothing specific comes to mind, but I can tell you there were definitely some good some good laughs, some very oh. random things, and then. Every once in a while, you would get something that came across your desk and you were like, hey, this feels like it might have some some meat or some weight to it. Those are exciting times. But a lot yeah. of them were pretty funny. People yeah. ratting out neighbors for, I don't know, driving too loud or uh, parking know. weird or <laughs> whatever you can think of, honestly. Oh, and then, and then you were an intercept monitor mm. for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police before becoming an analyst. So... What what did that entail? <laughs> so I worked as an interceptor wiretap monitor in a in a wire room. So with I think in the states they're called Title Three investigations. So listening to and monitoring legal intercept calls okay. essentially during major crime investigations. And that job by this point I had connected with a couple analysts and I was trying to really understand how to be how to be a successful applicant in an analyst mm-hmm. position and. From in Canada, one of the things that's required to become an analyst is a specific level of like federal um, security clearance. And Mm. those are really time consuming to get. Uh, They're time consuming for the organization to do for you. And so some advice that I got was you might look like a more appealing candidate who can start sooner rather than in a year if you are able to get a job that already gives you that clearance. So the intercept monitor Mm. was an avenue for me to get that clearance and get some big investigative exposure while I was at it and hopefully again make myself a successful successful applicant. Yeah, no, I I like your thinking here because <laughs> well, I ask people for their advice and I've talked to younger folks that are trying to get into their profession and people that are mentors that are looking to give advice to their mentees and it can be difficult sometimes to get into the profession. And and one of my things is that you either volunteer, you get an internship, mm-hmm. maybe you take maybe you take these jobs, these administrative jobs to to pad the resume a little bit, to do exactly what you did here, where over a two-year period you knew you wanted to become an analyst. You were trying to build the resume. So you get the degree in 20. 13, and then you have three stops dealing with law enforcement 
along the way before becoming an analyst with with Surrey? Yeah, there. I was fortunate to benefit from some people who gave me some great strategic advice. And like you said, that hiring process can be challenging sometimes. And independent of the analyst work, which I knew that I wanted to do, I sort of approached getting hired as like, okay, how can I set myself up to be the best candidate possible? And so another thing also that I did was the job descriptions that I was applying for as an analyst with the RCMP, they named specific software. And I was trying to figure out how to get some exposure to some of those things, things like ArcGIS, I2 Analyst Notebook, some of those classics. And they're tough to get exposure to when you aren't an analyst, at least I found that at the time. You can't like publicly use those tools necessarily. And so I also um, signed up for, there's an analyst training program at a post-secondary institution in the province that I'm in, Canada. And so I signed up for that to, maybe I didn't actually have actual investigative experience using those tools, but I could say that I knew how they worked, that I'd used them with fake data and that kind of thing. So that was, that was along the way too. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. And same token as most of these software programs will give you a 30-day Mm-hmm. whatever it is, license. And even if you're in college, I think there's an extended version of that. Maybe it doesn't have all the bells and whistles. But again, if you're just trying to get exposure to it, uh, again, to show that you have some knowledge of the tools that analysts use, that that's, that's a cheap path as well. Totally, yeah. Since I was at that um, point, I think there's a lot more. There's things like ArcGIS Online and some publicly available versions of some analyst-related tools that I think are really helpful for that. All right. So, hey, so we've gone through this whole process. <laughs> we have three jobs under our belt. We're going <laughs> in. And now we get the crime analyst position. So what was it like those first couple of days going in <laughs> and, and, and being a crime analyst for the first time? <laughs> I had no, no idea which was way was up. I'll start off by saying friends and family joked for a couple of years that all I did was accumulate jobs and not actually quit them. <laughs> so I had about four or five or something, just all like casual jobs, this hodgepodge that we've talked about. And then it was like, I quit all those. I got this analyst position. I moved. So the city I'm from is Victoria, British Columbia, and it's actually on an island. And so I moved about four hours away on the mainland of, of the province to Surrey. First kind of career feeling job. Bought a place, you know, really was like settled, trying to settle in for for life there. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a big move. I remember being in awe of the building, everything that I was asked to do. Uh, my first role, technically, in that analyst position in Surrey was I briefly had the title of community crime analyst, and I don't know that I ever figured out exactly what the expectations were, and I'm not sure that the organization did either. It was something new they were trying out. But after a little bit looking at some general crime patterns and trends and stuff like that, I ended up getting bumped to a property crime unit and working with them for for a bit. But yeah, those first those first few days, you're just trying to take it all in and feel like you be- <laughs> maybe belong and maybe deserve to be there. It was a big a big learning opportunity, but pretty exciting for me at that point. So did you say the, the city's on an island? Ah, so the city I'm from, the city I was born and raised in, and actually the city I live in again now, it is on an island. But when I talk to folks who are American, and I assume a lot of your audience is, I caveat that with saying, I'm pretty sure that the area of our island is bigger than the state of New Jersey. So it's not a tiny island. Okay. (laughs) To give some context, it's not like I'd have 
friends and I went to college in the States and I had friends who were like, how do you get your groceries? I'm like, no, 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 think bigger. It's, <laughs> they fly it's bigger. them in and drop them off from like the airplane. <laughs> like... No, no, the biggest city here, I think it's got a population of about the greater area of about like 360,000. So it's not, yeah. it's not so huge, is, but it's not tiny. Is it something that it's the islands close enough to the mainland where they take ferries back and forth or is Yep, it... exactly. Right. Takes an hour and 35 minutes <laughs> to ferry. Uh, between the two okay but it's not something you want to do every day that's for sure that, yeah okay hence the reason you moved all right i am exactly up, up to speed there all right took yeah me little, took me a little bit but i got <laughs> a little geography lesson yeah exactly. yeah so then with the property crimes what types of crimes are we focusing on what's the big problems there at, at uh yeah, and you'll have to educate me if I'm not sure um, if the same language is used in mm -hmm. the States, but in Canada, property crimes are things like break and enter, which I think might be the same as your robbery. So like if someone were to break into my home and steal something, that's a property crime. Theft, like from vehicle or theft mm -hmm. of other property, those types of things are property crimes. So those kind of high frequency, high volume, really nuisance to the community type crimes is where I started out as an analyst. Yeah, I, for the most part, I've heard police departments refer to them as theft from autos, but I uh, yeah. have heard from time to time vehicle burglaries. I've heard oh. I've heard that, but for the most part, theft from auto. When I was an analyst, that's what we referred to them in all the departments that I worked at. Nice. So, yeah, that's that's what we called it. Yeah, called then it a break, breaking and entering. I, I always like to use burgled. You were burgled, not robbed. Uh, okay, okay, burglary. Okay, got it. A burglary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a robbery. Robbery is a taking from uh, a that's person? on person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Force, same, same as that. Kind of yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So hey, well, you don't want to cause an international incident, right? Yeah. And funny, <laughs> funny you mentioned robbery. So I, I worked for a property crime unit, and then I ended up. I so within these jobs at Surrey, I moved around and did some different analyst roles. So I was working primarily in property crime that break and other stuff. And then I ended up actually working a little bit with a robbery unit as well. So they were focused primarily on things like bank robberies. Okay. So lots of patterns, trends, that kind of thing, more so on the higher volume property crime. And then by the time it got into robbery, it was more supporting like specific investigations, phone records, cell tower stuff, that that kind of thing. Being in Canada, do you see seasonal trends there? I mean, does it just get too cold for people to be outside type of thing? And so you're obviously seeing more stuff during the summertime than the wintertime? Yeah, I would say generally where I lived and where I worked were just north. Actually, the place I was living in was about two hours north of Seattle at the time. Mm -hmm. um, Surrey is kind of right on the U.S. border and uh, Canada-U.S. border. And so it's pretty temperate. So we'd get kind of consistent property crime throughout. But if 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 it ever snowed or anything like that, I mean, nobody was doing anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nothing nothing was happening if it ever got really cold. But it was pretty, pretty rare. So we would see, you see an uptick in the summer, especially as people are out and about or they're away on vacation and it's apparent there's no one home that kind of thing so yeah i would imagine similar similar sort of seasonal trends as somewhere like seattle all right so this mm. brings us to your analyst badge story and for those that may be new to the show the analyst badge story is the career defining case or project that an analyst works so we're here about 2016 time frame and you get a, a case to to analyze mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So the crime type, I'm going to steer clear of the, the specifics of the crime type, but I'm trying to, I don't actually remember how it came into us, but I was asked to help initially support the response to, to this crime, I guess, that had taken place. And as the investigators started to look into it, it was really this orchestrated event that took place in a number of different locations with different places that were impacted. But they had no suspect leads really whatsoever. But what they did have was some video footage that showed a number of suspects on their phones, which was really the first big thing for us to go from. So I don't know what the standard investigative response in the in the States would be, but for us, it was like, okay, we'll see what cell phones, cell phone numbers were accessing cell towers in the vicinity of the places where we knew these individual crimes had taken place. So they all happened kind of over a period of one night. And it was like, well, we'll see if there's any numbers that show up in these five or six locations um, and see what we can find from that. Mm-hmm. So the investigators wrote the legal application that's required in Canada to be able to get that data from a telephone provider. And it came in. And that was one of the first things that landed on my desk was like, here's this pile of data. It's a mess. Can you tell us if there's any common numbers between these towers? So a classic cell tower dump. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we did that, sure enough, we found, I believe we initially found two numbers. That's how the first two numbers came up. So it was like, okay, this took place in the middle of the night. We now know it's, there's not going to be any other reason for people to be in all these specific locations. We're going to get call detail records for the billing records from the telcos for these two numbers and see what we can learn about who they are. So that was the next next thing that happened. And at this point, there's really no, there's no physical evidence. There's nothing kind of generating any leads other than, other than this. So with this data, is it a very specific time? Because I'm, I'm just thinking if you have surveillance, you probably know specifically what time these folks are on their phone. Yep. And but of course you don't. It, you're basically the the phone company is giving you every single phone that hit those towers during that very small time frame. That's exactly right. Yep. Okay. And they were they were times like two to three a.m. Or actually, we had even more specific ranges. It was like five minutes because of mm-hmm. that video surveillance. So it'd be like two o five to two ten a.m. And between the same two numbers being at all five locations within the specific time frame of the people that we saw on video surveillance, we were like, okay, this feels like a, a valuable and legal lead to to pursue. So that's sort of what got us got us going. And then the, so then we got the billing records, which is the communication history between for those two two numbers that we identified. And when we took a look at them, we realized that they were really a closed network. So the phones had only been active for about a month. They only communicated with each other and one additional number. So that was where we found, okay, now there's three numbers involved. There's three suspects. And we pretty quickly were like, okay, this is a burner phone situation. The phones were not used again after the crime. They were only used in the month beforehand. We assume maybe to plan what was going to happen. And there was really maybe only like, I can't remember, but 30 to 50 call records over the period of that month. So not a ton to go off of, but now we had, now we had three numbers. So that was, again, that was. That almost oh, yeah, makes your it. life easier, right? Sure. Like the fact that you don't have like the pizza that they're calling or they're, they're calling their mom, they're call they're calling all these other different numbers and 
you just get hundreds of thousands of calls in a given month that you're having to sort through. The fact that this probably was phones dedicated just for this job, I would think would make your life a little bit easier. Totally. Although sometimes I think while it makes it easier, it doesn't give you a lot to go off in terms of establishing like a pattern that would allow you to be like this, this person's pattern of life or anything like that. Mm. And it also didn't give us, the burner phones were set up with fake names that gave us no information. We couldn't get any good information off the device, anything like that. But the investigators, so this part didn't impact or didn't, wasn't my role necessarily, but they got a great break. And us through some of the like work that they did on the investigation, they surfaced up a, a, a possible suspect. And this is where I feel like my job started to get fun mm-hmm. and where it feels like the work I did here has actually kind of shaped the trajectory really of sort of the rest of my career. But they got a suspect and we were like, okay, we could get that person's personal phone billing records and overlay them with the the burner phone records and look at where they were used, what time they were used, and how plausible it was for any of these burner phones to be potentially associated because of the the co-location between the burner phone and the suspect's personal phone or the the month that that the burner phone was active. So that's what we did. We got the suspect's personal phone records and then I got to do a bunch of fun analysis, mapping, looking at tower frequency stuff, looking at travel patterns and how likely and possible it was for they to be used by the same person. Were they ever used too far apart for them to have been the same person? So kind of painting that picture or trying to understand if they were possibly the same person. So did that and established that that suspect was likely a user of one of the burner phones, which was which is fantastic. It felt like, okay, now we maybe are starting to be able to tie this person to this investigation or to this crime. And then it kept going from there. So then we got that suspect's most frequent caller or contacts, trying to understand who his network was and who maybe potentially they had committed the crime with and started getting some of their records and did the same thing, overlay them with the burner phone activity, looked at patterns through space and time and was able to establish that an associate was likely another user of one of the burner phones just by kind of linking the pattern and the way that those phones were used during the month that the burner phones were active. So this had probably all played out over like three or four months at this point. They're like three or four months into trying to investigate, trying to trying to resolve this one and a ton of different phone records. I was drowning, I think, in Excel spreadsheets at the time. It was it was really a lot of fun. And one of the reasons that I'm talking about this today, obviously talking more about like kind of the work that I got to do was it really stretched my thinking about how to think about analysis, especially when communications data analysis is one of the cornerstones of your investigations. We really didn't have a lot else. In fact, the investigators didn't have a lot else to go off of. And so it really came down to finding a compelling way to convince like prosecutors that this is sufficient evidence to attempt to prosecute with and being able to not only do all the data analysis work, but then also craft that story in a way that is easily digestible and you aren't getting hung up on things like cell tower specifics and that that sort of thing. So it was a lot of fun. And we will talk a little bit later about the job I'm in now, but I it really laid the groundwork for for where I am today because I got to use some some new tools and uh, a tool that is now a Penlink product, which is where I work today, really helped me out in 
kind of painting that picture and telling that story through the investigation. So it was kind of a neat one for me. So were you able to identify everyone <laughs> that was in their surveillance video? Yeah, I was just going to say, so we, we eventually, it took probably another four or five months of like combing phone records, trying to understand all possible associates, but we were able to identify a third, a third suspect and then use the strength of the phone analysis work in conjunction with some other circumstantial evidence to ultimately arrest and, and interview these people. So it's a pretty, pretty yeah. fun one to be able to successfully tie those pieces together, paint that picture, uh, and make yeah. some of that stuff happen. Now, was there sur the quality of the surveillance videos such that that could help you once comparing photos to the video? Sadly, not. They were uh, all disguised up. So we had okay. nothing to go off of in terms of like physical appearance or anything like that. It obviously made the investigator's job infinitely harder because we're really just coming down to like, look, the way this phone was used, the way this phone was used, that couldn't have been coincidence. They were always together around the same time. Yeah. So is this is this still in court or is this adjudicated, this case? The case never fully was adjudicated for like a variety of unrelated reasons, but there were there was initial arrests and work to charge but no it was never mm -hmm. never reached that happy resolution for reasons that analysts are familiar with in terms of like legal complexity and all that kind of stuff yeah and just i'm fascinated because as you mentioned that the whole crux of that investigation going down the path was initiated by that search of the cell phone towers and whittling mm -hmm. that down and mm -hmm. so I would be curious to hear, I was, my next set of questions was like, what did the defense did with that? Like how much mm. did they pick up, try to pick apart that, that step of the process? Because that, that's, that's very specific. And as you said, you had no other leads other than mm -hmm. that one, which took you down, down the path of identifying your suspect. And that was something, and obviously because it didn't get there, that that isn't something I actually have the answer to. But mm -hmm. while the investigation was ongoing, that was something that was super top of mind for us was what is it going to look like to do? And so when I was doing the analysis and when I was talking with the investigative team and we were working on it, it was like, how are we going to do this in a way that is obviously super well documented, but with the anticipation that a lot of specifics and nuance related to phone records and telco system billing systems and cell towers and how they all work anticipating that a lot of that was going to come up in court so we never we never got to find out on that specific case but but that was something that we figured would eventually happen and i assumed that would take up a good chunk of my life trying to try to explain some of that but. hi there i'm amanda bruner president of the carolinas crime analysis association and I'm thrilled to invite you to our upcoming training conference in the historically rich city of Charleston, South Carolina. Join us from February 27th through March 1st for an immersive experience aimed at honing the skills of crime and intelligence analysts in both the public and private sectors. With over 125 attendees expected, it's a prime opportunity to learn and network with other professionals. We are proud to announce that Dr. Rachel Santos, author of Crime Analysis with Crime Mapping, will be our keynote speaker. Plus, don't miss masterclasses hosted by renowned experts like Dr. Eric Pisa, Charlie Giberti, and NW3C. But that's not all. We have a student poster session, proctored IACA exams, and more. And guess what? Your registration includes two full conference days plus the masterclasses. And it's not just about learning. It's about creating lasting memories. So enjoy lunch on us, 
indulge at our ice cream social, and join in our networking events, including ghost tours. Registration is a steal at $225 for members and $275 for non-members. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity. Join us for a conference that combines professional development with a touch of Southern charm. I look forward to seeing y'all in Charleston. Register today at carolinascrimeanalysis.org. That's carolinascrimeanalysis.org. Hi, this is Don Clausius. I just want you to know that when you hear or you think as an analyst, they don't know what they want us to do. Always remember, you don't have to wait. Show them, tell them, and be value added. Uh, before we get on to Penlink, though, mm-hmm. you, you leave Surrey to, mm-hmm. to take an intel job with mm-hmm. the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And I was telling you before we started this <laughs> recording that I feel that Royal Canadian Mounted Police sounds so upscale. It sounds like <laughs> it's like a really big deal. Like it's extra. There's a lot to that, at least from my point of view seems like it's a really big deal yeah yeah it's it is definitely really big it brings to mind i don't know if you've ever seen pictures but like police officers in canada wearing red surge and literally riding horseback yeah that was many years ago (laughs) i think there are ceremonial horses yeah 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 yeah. i think there are ceremonial horses but that is uh long past but no the rcmp is canada's federal police agency and when i'm talking with folks in the states i kind of compare it to like it's like if you combined the FBI and the DEA and all those, like a bunch of the federal level policing agencies, but you also, the RCMP is also responsible for, for policing at the provincial. So like the equivalent to our, to your state or county kind of level, as well as individual municipalities. So all of those different things and local level, I guess. So all of those different levels of policing are a part of the RCMP. So it has a really wide mandate and does a lot of different things in Canada when it comes to policing. Some bigger cities have their own local police departments, but smaller cities or towns won't. And so the RCMP is the local police of jurisdiction there as well. It's an interesting, interesting policing model, but I think it sounds fancier than (laughs) (laughs) than it necessarily is. Yeah. And I I noticed that your title in Surrey was crime analyst. And mm-hmm. now when you take this job with RCMP, you're an intel analyst. Mm-hmm. And so a lot in the States, we spend a lot of time and energy in talking about crime analysis versus intelligence analysis. Us too. But, Us too. Okay. So I was, <laughs> that's where my question is like, so where does, where, where did you stand? Because those are obviously, you have two different titles there in, in, in that you, that you had. Yeah. So at the city of Surrey, where I was working at the local police agency level, it was actually still, to make matters more complicated, it was still an RCMP, a Royal Canadian Mounted Police Detachment, but just local. So at this point, I moved on to be employed actually by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and got that title of intelligence analyst. And so I was working more at Surrey, like we talked about the patterns and trends kind of thing, hotspots, that sort of thing, as well as some investigative support. And then my first position as an intel analyst with the RCMP, the first unit that I worked for worked on like threat and risk assessment types of war, like strategic intelligence analysis, looking at analyzing qualitative like aggregation of data and looking at risk and threat and that sort of thing. More at like a yeah bigger picture kind of strategic level. But that said, I also had, I worked 
for as an intelligence analyst for a gang and organized crime unit. And there I went back to working a lot more with phone records, supporting individual gang and organized crime investigations. So even though the title was intelligence analyst, I kind of ended up doing a range of different things. But the days of looking at hotspots and like patterns and trends, that was sort of left behind. I, I did most of that work at Surrey. Okay. So with, with the organized crime analysis, mm-hmm. I mean, what is there particular groups that you were looking for or how did cases get on your docket? Yeah, I love I love that question because I remember when I realized the difference between like reactive policing. So a crime has occurred and you're reacting to it versus like at a bigger, broader level, understanding specific groups and the dynamics in the organized crime landscape and and pursuing investigations based on the understanding, based on maybe some information that there's criminal activity happening and sort of building and establishing criminal investigation, which is a very different, those are very different ways for investigations to play out. And there's very different considerations when you're an analyst, like if you're working on an offense that has already taken place and you're trying to understand who committed versus you're trying to prosecute a larger group and understand kind of their role in the bigger picture and build up that investigation. Those are very different, different things. But yeah, at the, at the gang and organized crime unit, we were working a lot on specific groups that were known to be active in primarily in the drug trade kind of thing. Um, and pursuing and building investigations in cases against them and sort of discovering along the way who was committing indictable chargeable offenses. Yeah, so that sounds like intelligence-led police. <laughs> I, yes, in I think in theory, in practice, <laughs> sometimes it plays out. <laughs> sometimes it plays out like whatever information we got most recently that seems viable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but in theory, there's definitely like an intelligence-led component to it for sure. Yeah, it it is fascinating when you think about it because it it can be reactive and it can be the fact that police departments, you get the call for service or who's doing the most homicides or who's Mm -hmm. doing the most violence, what groups are fighting, and that's what you're trying to quash. And so that squeaky wheel is the what gets gets the attention. Mm -hmm. But I think with the intelligence-led policing model, it's actually looking for ways to break up the organization, right? To Mm -hmm. actually go deeper than just solve the crimes that are on record the unsolved crimes it's literally trying to take down the organization yeah and disruption was explicitly part of the the mandate so beyond just the criminal prosecution piece and if you have that then you're pursuing the investigation with that in mind um whereas if you're if your goal is disruption or something similar than how you're working and the things that might be important to your investigation look a little bit different. That was definitely um, a mindset switch for me at that point. Yeah. You were there three-ish years. Uh, (laughs) How did you feel? Did you feel that you were able to make a difference and that that was, (laughs) you were disrupting or it was just fire hydrant to the face type of thing? (laughs) Oh, that's such a good question. I would love to say yes. I think what and not to be too <laughs> serious at this point, but I think it became apparent too where it was like, okay, you can disrupt one thing and then another thing fills that void. So sometimes it felt like, oh, 
are we are we really making a difference? But then other times you'd have a couple big wins, you'd have some some big successes, and then it but then it felt more positive. So I think it yeah. depends. But I don't know that uh, people we always joked about it like it's job security, right? I don't know that we were ever successfully gonna mm-hmm. <laughs> gonna eradicate all crime, sadly. Yeah. So then let's get into Penlink. Uh-huh. And we talked about Royal Canadian Mounted uh-huh. Police. This is the this is pretty high up there on the list of of achievements in your careers. What goes into the <laughs> idea of leaving the police department and going into the private sector in Penlink? Yeah, so it really was sort of a two-part career just for me. The first part happened while I was still at the RCMP, and it was really prompted by, I spent a lot of time, especially the time that I was at the Gang and Organized Crime Unit, but also other places, trying to figure out how to make working with data better in the organization. I found like there were a lot of challenges. Sometimes we just spent so much time stitching together Excel spreadsheets, and I was kind of always really consumed and interested in how can I facilitate investigative outcomes better by streamlining access to data? So play around with different things like how do the investigators they work with, how do they know what vehicles have been seen on when they were doing surveillance before? And so extracting that data out of Word documents for them and having them be able to search it from their phones. And so I got kind of really interested in the system side of things. Um, and realized I really liked focusing on that. And then I actually had an opportunity to join a team at the RCB whose focus was that, was how can we use data and improve access to data to improve the effectiveness of our police investigations? So went from being an analyst to kind of doing that off the side of my desk to now that's my job. Mm-hmm. And so my title there was a product manager, and I got to work with a team who were really fighting the kind of uphill battle of how does law enforcement use their their data better, both within investigations and to support how policing is coordinated and organized, whether it be like staffing models and that kind of thing. So developed kind of a love for that. Didn't know that I would ever think it would become my full-time gig, but I think it was born out of the frustration of like, as an analyst, I feel like there's got to be a way to make some of these things better. And then then I got to do that work. So that happened while I was at the RCMP. And then it was funny, actually, a little over a year ago, an existing product manager at Penlink had my contact information from when I worked on that batch story that I talked about earlier. So I had used Geotime desktop to help paint that picture of how the phones are traveling and try to create that compelling story, I guess, and had gotten to interact with the vendor a little bit. And so someone, a product manager at Penlink reached out to run an idea by me as a former customer last year. And I saw in talking through that while they were working on this software concept, I saw that they had a job opening and I was like, hey, I'm a product manager now. And I think I've, so I've always, I always loved working for government. I really liked the mission and the feeling like, okay, we're all here and united around this concept of like, in theory, we're trying to make the world a bit of a better place. And I really like that. But I also sometimes got frustrated. The pace of change was slow and it felt like progress was sometimes slow. And so I became curious, like, what would it look like to do this outside of outside of the government on the private sector side of things? So applied for that open position that I talked about, ultimately ended up getting the position and then started 
I was gonna say earlier this year, but it's already last year now. It's yeah. early January. So started with Penlink last April. So I really I went from being like a Penlink product user years ago as an analyst to now getting to sit on the other side of the table where we get to think about how to make these products work better for for analysts and investigations. It's it's very much about like kind of a full circle experience yeah. for me. Now, are you supporting Canadian police departments or Canadian agencies, or do you at Penlink, you're just wherever they need you type of thing? Yeah. So my role is working. Penlink has a number of different or a handful of different software products that assist with analyst work and police investigations. And so there are customers many customers in the United States, and then also Canada and North America, and an international presence as well. So we have law enforcement customers all over the world, and that's been a really fun learning experience for me. I've I've had a decent understanding of Canadian law enforcement, but learning how police investigations can operate totally different in the States or in Europe or in other places. So yeah, Canada, but also, also the rest of the world. With PenLink, mm-hmm. And then you mentioned geocant time, and I haven't, mm-hmm. I've had trouble keeping up on like who's joined at the hip with who. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, so, so, and because, right, because I think even geotime buddied up with a company even before the merger with Penlink. So, I'm, I'm a little confused on all what companies encompass Penlink these days. Yeah. So, Penlink has gone through in the past year and a half, they've acquired two companies. So they, Penlink, which is the parent company, they have a product called PLX that analysts in police investigations use. And then they acquired the Geotime product suite. Mm. So desktop and, and enterprise. And then most recently we merged with or acquired Cobwebs. So they, uh, to bring some cool. open source intelligence capabilities to the Penlink product family. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, and that just recently happened. So since you got there, this is, seems to have all been falling into place. Yeah. Are you picking up on this theme of a uh, ton of change over <laughs> yeah. the past couple of years? Yeah, there's been yeah. there's definitely been a lot of change, but it's been it's pretty exciting. It, we're pretty thrilled to be able to to bring some open source and obviously knowing investigation. I mean, just what our lives look like in terms of more and more open source and information. It's uh, pretty exciting to to bring that into. So I guess it's only been 10 months, but mm-hmm. at, at this point, I mean, how are you feeling about the position? Obviously you like it, but I mean, it's just, <laughs> Me too. It's just how you, how you feeling at this point? Yeah, I love it. It's exciting. It feels really fun to be working for a company that's really focused on ultimately actually the same goal as when I was an analyst, which is like, how do we enable police investigations to be more effective? How do we enable analysts? So it's, that part I love and is is incredibly exciting. Um, I'd love the chance to understand more about how different police agencies operate and how we can, through our tools, we can support them. That brings me a ton of joy. So yeah, it's what do we say, eight nine months in now, and it's been it's been a fantastic experience. It's a lot of fun. It's really fun having your job be thinking about how do we how do we support our customers and enable our customers, and it's fun too thinking about. Man, I sure wish I had some of these tools. What <laughs> would have made my life <laughs> a whole lot easier, especially when it comes to working with some of those those phone records. So yeah, it's been it's been a ton of fun. Yeah. So I see that you're remote. Mm-hmm. So does that mean you moved back to the island? I did. Yep, I did. I took the ferry back over with all my stuff, and now I live again in the the town that I was born and raised in. Oh, 
I understand the private sector. I mm-hmm. certainly understand the appeal. I've spoken on the show several times now that I do feel, though, for the law enforcement analysis profession to get to another level that more analysts are going to have to break through and get on the executive boards at police departments. Like mm. That has to, I think that's really the way that that law enforcement analysis goes to the next level. And, but there's the, the private sector is making it oh so difficult for people to stick around that long to work their way up that ladder. And I feel now normally you, you have the salary differences, but the fact that private sectors are allowing people to work from home is a Mm. huge benefit, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas a lot of police departments are not on board with working from home. Yeah. It's obviously taking this remote position enabled my relocation as well. And I don't know, it makes me think that we're kind of at this interesting time with like government type positions, public sector positions and, and private sector where there's kind of this reckoning. And I don't know if we've already had it or if we're having it, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but it's really like, what does work look like in the future and how is the government going to adapt or, or are they? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know if they are. There's some government jobs that that have adapted to that. I, but from what I've talked with analysts that work at police departments, that work from home was very short-lived, if at all. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I did work from home for a chunk of time with RCMP, but it was that chunk where I was already working in the product management position. So on that mm-hmm. less operational, more operational support type unit. And so uh, yeah, I think we've seen at least in Canada, I think we've seen folks are primarily working in the office, which has an impact on who you can hire and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's an interesting um, time. <laughs> yeah. I want to get into some advice for mm. our listeners now. And I guess, but maybe even before that, we had, we're talking in the prep call and I, you said something interesting that I want to discuss a little bit more. It was talking about the hiring process for analysis. You mentioned the difference between getting the job and doing the job and so i wanted to just get your thoughts on that statement like like as it as and then we can get into some of the advice that we have for for our listeners yeah i think it it relates to what we touched on at the beginning too where when we talked about i guess i had a bit of a strategy for how to get through the hiring process knowing at least my experience with the analyst hiring process was really rigid with certain expectations and you had to frame your resume a certain way and you had to talk about your interview answers a certain way and it's this very like structured process that you almost have to be successful at crafting and fitting within that system to be able to get yourself hired and there's a distinction between the skills required to do that and to make yourself a good candidate for the sake of the hiring process being distinct from the skills required to be a good analyst i know obviously we make our hiring processes theoretically to be able to hire sort of the best fit possible but i think sometimes with those analysts or maybe just government generally hiring processes they they can be constraining i think so for me it's when I look back at how I got hired, it's like really thinking about, okay, there was the work I did to get myself hired. 
And then there was the skills I developed and needed to continue to develop to be a good analyst. And thinking about those things as like almost two different, two different things. Yeah. All right. And then uh, what uh, advice do you have for our listeners? Hmm. I would say that strategy piece that we talked about in terms of really looking like if you want to become an analyst, really understanding not just the analyst skills, but also understanding and learning what you can about the hiring process, how to make yourself a good candidate is important. And I think related to that is distinguishing the result of the hiring process from your personal perception of your own skills or abilities. I know people with fantastic analytical minds and skill sets who didn't make it through a hiring process and being able to understand that that's sometimes a reflection of the process and needing to maybe strategize or reapproach how you do that process, but it's independent of the skills that will make you successful once you have the job. I think thinking about it that way can be better for our mental health because I, I don't know if it's the same in the States, but at least in Canada, that analyst hiring process can be arduous and exam filled and interview filled and complicated. Um, and it can take its toll. I've met with a handful of analysts over the years trying to break in and it can be really tough and I think discouraging at times. Right. I think it's interesting from when I hear folks talk outside of the state about the process. And I think it sounds like from your perspective, there was was a standard influence throughout, whether whether it's the local government or all working away all the way up to RCMP, is that there seemed to be certain standards established whereas here in the states there's 17,000 police departments <laughs> and so you have 17,000 basically hiring, hiring uh, process yeah. so it is very muddled here <laughs> the process can be really difficult on how to narrow down your focus and how mm. to because i think with yours you identified like i need to get this background check because i know that's mm-hmm. going to be part of the process so you put yourself in a position to get that background check. And then mm-hmm. you were like, oh, I need to beef up the re- resume because I need some practical experience at a police department. So then you worked at Crime Stoppers and you worked in records. Mm-hmm. And whereas here in the States, uh, until the announcement comes out, you really don't know what the police department is looking for. You can Those things will be helpful. I'm not saying it's a waste of time to do what you did, right? Yeah, you're yeah. Gonna, you're gonna, you're but it gonna totally see changes re- the game. Yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're going to see a return on investment by doing, doing those things and having mm-hmm. that experience. But it's, mm-hmm. it's not as straightforward because there's just so many different police departments and so many different standards and so many different types of analysis going on. So interesting. And that makes me think that if I were in that context, one of the things I'd be thinking about is really trying to understand what expectations do they have for that role and how does it fit with my skill sets? Because I think we touched on it too, like that distinction between crime and intelligence analysis, and then um, maybe sometimes how those things play out in reality, like defining crime and intelligence analysis and then defining the roles. I feel like it's such a big, a big topic and it it can play out differently. So I feel like, especially if agencies all sort of have their own processes, really understanding what are they after mm-hmm. and figuring out how you can deliver that for them feels like a key, knowing that they're 
potentially all very different. Yeah. Hmm. How about uh, return on investment? What's something that they should study now that will be important five years from now? Hmm. To me, it's been a really big theme throughout my career. And obviously now I work in systems that help analyst investigators deal with data, but understanding how to work with data, how to make sense of it, data structures. We talked about like exposure to the RMS being great because you understand the way systems work and how that creates the data outputs you see. Same thing with like telephone company billing records, CDRs, how those telco systems generate that Excel file that lands on your desk where you've got duplicate records and all sorts of stuff going on. Understanding how systems work to generate the data and knowing that they are system-generated data and how you interpret it depends on that. I think those skills and being able to think about data that way is really valuable from a not only a crime analyst, but also any type of intelligence analysis. Like I think there's a lot of opportunity to make use of data and think strategically about the use of data in law enforcement. And I think this is something that the private sector and other industries have really embraced and gotten on board with when we think about like the tools we use in our daily life. Data is really everything. I think in law enforcement, having a really strong data skill set is a leg up right now. But I also think it's going to be increasingly required as so much of our lives are sort of like connected. And now you can get data out of your car. And there's a lot of opportunities when it comes to crime and intelligence analysis with using data. So to me, that stands out as something like if I were an aspiring analyst, and even in my role today, like improving Establishing and improving data skills feels pretty crucial. Yeah, it, it's fascinating because even before I was an analyst, mm-hmm. if I was going to do a major purchase, for instance, I would study, I would talk to different people, I would, what little internet was going on <laughs> way back when, I would get some advice, I would be well researched before making that decision. Yeah. And so to me, Data-driven decision-making has been part of my life mm. for for a long, long time. And <laughs> so the idea of consuming, judging, and planning based on data is just something that's naturally been part of my process, but obviously <laughs> in the in both professional and personal life. Yeah. And so... Or an analyst. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, you talked about the dealing with with data and mm-hmm. understanding data I, I found that that to me it's it, it's innate to, to mm. do that but i feel that for some people that's that it doesn't necessarily compute there like it's <laughs> it's like well why did you buy that car he's like oh i just liked it and wanted one and so i went and bought bought the car where it's like i probably have excel spreadsheets on all the different cars that i would buy and trying to come up with the best reason to buy one particular car right that's how my mind works if i'm doing a major purchase like that i'm not just buying a car on a whim yeah that's uh, funny you say that because my family still laughs about the fact that i was like 10 or 12 or something and i was committed that i was going to get a mini cooper and so I figured out the price of Mini Cooper with taxes and everything. And then I made a budget for myself at 12 years. I didn't account for any expenses, though. I was just going to figure out how to save up enough to buy one. Yeah. It didn't happen. But that, like, putting data into a spreadsheet, and <laughs> it, it comes naturally. I'd say, yeah, it's definitely a prerequisite um, thing for being an analyst, but also something that we can continue to hone our skills on over, over analyst careers. 
good deal. <laughs> All right, we're going to take some calls. Favorite first jobs. And so these are uh, callers letting us know what they did before they were analysts for as a first job. I got this idea from Steve Gottlieb who was mm. a radio DJ at 17 years old in his local hometown on Sunday mornings when that was one of his first jobs, which I always thought was really cool. So I like to ask analysts from time to time, what was their favorite first job? And so nice. we got five callers on the line. First up is Amanda. Amanda, what is one of your favorite first jobs? I think my favorite first real part-time job was working for the Michigan State University School of Criminal Justice as a ADA remediation assistant. So I basically worked with transcribing course videos and tagging electronic documents for hearing impaired and visually impaired students. That's a interesting job. I remember when I was in college, they paid folks to read out loud, record their voice, reading the chapters for folks. <laughs> and that's that was somebody's job in in, in college. And yeah. so you know, now with everything being recorded and you can transcribe everything and get the text versions of everything, I, I can see where that video uh, editing is a is a big need. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I that is not where I expected when she started talking about the context she was working in. That's not where I expected the job to go. That's super interesting. And I I totally agree. I think that nowadays there's probably an increasing need for something like that it's an interesting one yeah that's a nice admirable job all right next on the line is andrew andrew what's one of your favorite first jobs my favorite first job was working at skyline chili the thing i honestly remember most about it is because i worked in the kitchen and was constantly either messing around with the chili or washing the chili off plates and i'd leave work every day and i'd, I'd smell like skyline chili for the rest of the night regardless of how many times i took a shower <laughs> see i don't i i don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing i i don't know if that's uh <laughs> that's uh a good feeling or a bad feeling yeah, that is that is fantastic. I want to know how much chili consumed. Like, is it one of those things where you like get sick of it, or are you just yeah. grateful for? I assume you maybe get some free chili here and there. Like, at what point do you get tired of that? That's that'd be interesting. yeah, yeah. So I did work in the food industry when I was in high school and even into college, and I got to the point where I would not go eat there on my own right like i was like I, i'm there all the time i wouldn't go to eat food from there so i, I would get sick of it in a way and when you're your man in the fryer making fries or whatever it is all night long you do just smell like grease for a long period <laughs> of time i imagine that'd get pretty old yeah 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 so but <laughs> All right, next on the line is Sabrina. Sabrina, what's one of your favorite first jobs? My first job was a car hub at Sonic. I remember my first week coming home hating cherry limeades because my hands were permanently red from cherry juice. I also learned important life lessons like how to make coffee and how to spell fake money, checks, and IDs. Huh, that's, that's interesting. Now, do they have Sonics up your way? I was have you been just going to Sonic? say, I'm laughing because... No, there is no Sonic in Canada. And so I did my undergrad degree at the University of Tulsa in Oklahoma, and that was my first exposure to Sonic. And so Sonic brings back so many college memories, like French toaster sticks or something like that. Yeah. I remember going after yeah. I was on a rowing team, like after practice, we'd go get those. Yeah, that's that is some nostalgia for me, for sure. That sounds like a great job. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think they were ahead of their time, too, with the mm. ordering in a queue, right? You drive your car up to a station with basically a big TV screen and you make your selection, you make, you put in your order. And I, I just really feel that they were ahead of their time because now you go to McDonald's or you go anywhere and you're like ordering first and then you go pick up your food. Like you're ordering from a computer screen. Yeah, yeah. There was a point in time where when the ki my kids were little, like we went there like multiple times a week. Like we would awesome. go to, we would go to happy hour, which was two to four and get so like, they would try like every, yes. every, they would try like every single combination of slushy that they, they had type of thing. <laughs> That's awesome. So, Does yeah. Sonic, is it still, like, I don't, I don't know the answer to this. Is, are there Sonics everywhere? Like across the United States? So I don't remember seeing them in Pennsylvania and that area, but I do okay. know they were in Tennessee and I do know they're in Florida. So and okay, I've seen okay. them, I've seen them in the South a lot, but I'm not, <laughs> I don't know if I can speak with, to the rest of the, the country. That's true. Now that you mention it, I don't know that I've I've seen one in Washington, but I would I wouldn't mind one close to me. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So all right. All right. Next on the line is Chris. Chris, what's one of your favorite first jobs? One of my favorite first jobs. I'm a teenager. I'm working in a supermarket in upstate New York. I'm working like the night shift at the Grand Union. And it was just a, a fun job because I had a fun boss and we we had to restock shelves and clean. That was the night crew's job. But again, we also got to sample whatever food we wanted in the store, typically not paying for it. <laughs> and we typically got to have quite a bit of fun with the, uh, the forklift or the uh, floor cleaner, you know, these kind of motor vehicle type of uh, <laughs> equipment that we got to drive around in, even though it was only seen at the time. So yeah, I, I think that would be my, my favorite first job or, or fa one of my favorite early jobs. Yeah. It, I think it's amazing what, when you're young, what, like you could just get paid in food. <laughs> like I think that's a big, that's a big thing for for folks. Like if you have food, then that goes a long way in in getting people to work. So I uh, I was just thinking that too. We've got a bit of a, a food theme going on here. I like it. Yeah, yeah. So I actually worked third shift seasonally for Toys R Us the one year oh. around, around Christmas time. And that was an interesting job and to stock the shelves. And one thing that drove me nuts though, is that they would keep on the loudspeaker uh, recording all night long. So oh. you would you would listen to the same commercials basically or same toy highlights over and over and over oh. again which Yikes. oh my goodness would just would just that ate at me eventually so i want to say but, do you still do you still remember any <laughs> i know there was like what like a game like boulder dash i i, I think mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a boulder dash game that they talked about it's like it still gives me you know chills type of thing but but in terms of like the forklift or we had this we cr crushed all the boxes in this compactor that like we used to put all kinds of stuff in that compactor to try to crush it so it was awesome that sounds fun yeah it was the stupid stuff that you know <laughs> little extra so all right our last caller on the show is Christine, Christine, what's one of your favorite first jobs? My favorite first job was working at NASCAR. I was a special events coordinator 
which let me travel all over the country during the NASCAR season. I got to see places in the United States that I have never seen before. I got to stay in some of the greatest hotels. We would go for the for the final banquet in New York City. So I was staying at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City at Christmas time, eating the best food. So that has <laughs> probably got to be my favorite first job just because it opened up so many doors for me to see this country yeah well so she 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 started out with uh, not talking about food but then she brought it back with food so she even (laughs) got the memo so like a nascar like i'm not a big nascar fan but a lot of my family is so i Mm. i appreciate that and they were they're probably all salivating at the mouth that she had a job with nascar and she was promoting the profession and traveling all over the country working for nascar that sounds like a pretty amazing opportunity i want to know how old she was that's awesome yeah yeah that is that is impressive so i don't know so anyway good memories there if you have a favorite job and you want to share it with us email us at leapodcasts at gmail.com all right amanda let's finish up with personal interest and you are a football fan and we actually got to talking a lot of football yesterday on the prep prep call which was i'm always game for but you're a seahawks fan so Mm -hmm. We don't know that exactly of this recording whether the play the Seahawks are making the playoffs. So you think they're making the playoffs? Oh, is it bad to say I hope not? <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, I'm pro like a bit of a a team overhaul. So I think not making the playoffs would be better for them in the long run. But they tend to do unexpected things. I don't think they should make the playoffs. Probably means they will. Yeah. So and then do you? I mean, it's we don't even know the playoff teams. But do you mm-hmm. have a Super Bowl prediction? Oh, it might have been the Eagles like four or five weeks ago before things like before they just cratered. The Ravens are looking pretty great and the 49ers look pretty solid, too. So I would be surprised if one of them. Yeah, I I think one of the two of them potentially that'd be where i'd have to go yeah yeah i think i don't know i'm not a ravens fan so i <laughs> i will root against the ravens but they do look, they do look pretty they solid. do look good though so, right yeah but, yeah so i don't know it just seems like it's been a long time since both number one seeds got into the mm. super bowl so i don't i don't know if that's true there's always surprises along the way yeah yeah, I think, and then there probably will be this year as well. But 49ers do do look solid, and I think I don't know the Rams look good as a as a wild horse. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they. But, I feel like you can never quite count them out. Yeah, but the AFC the AFC seems weird now that the Burrow from the Bengals got injured, mm-hmm. and I don't know what the Bills are, and I don't trust the Dolphins and. It seems like even the Chiefs are having their problems, so I'm not sure what what's going to come out of the AFC. Yeah, it's a it's been an interesting season of football. Like yeah. the year of the backup quarterback for sure. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So hard to know. Was, that's always interesting. Yeah, I know some guy that you're paying like league minimum, <laughs> like one million dollars, right? is playing, and and, and the one pinning you're your paying, playoff hopes on them. Yeah, yeah, the one that you're paying forty million dollars is injured. <laughs> yeah, pretty unbelievable. So, yeah. So, all right. Well, our last segment of the show is words to the world. You can promote any idea that you wish, Amanda. What are your words to the world? I was thinking about this. Mine are to 
this is going to sound maybe really philosophical, but to interrogate the systems and culture that you work in, both in work and in life. So whether you're an analyst, like if you have joined the law enforcement environment and you're trying to do a good job at your job, not just doing what's expected, but really understand like how's law enforcement structured? How are you contributing to make it better? How are you making your work environment better for the people around you? And the same, I think the same goes for our personal lives. How can we contribute to really making a better world for all of us and understanding the role that we play in that? That's what I will leave us with. Very good. Why well, leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Amanda. Thank you so much and you be safe. Thank you for having me. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.